This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Jody Vance in for Mike this week. And boy, do we have a busy Tuesday here on the Mike Smith Show today. We will run the gamut from an explainer on how young people derailed Donald Trump's Tulsa rally by using TikTok. We'll have Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality drop by next hour to talk us through that. To more municipal moves announced yesterday around policing in Vancouver. Former Vancouver City Councilor George Affleck will be by to give us his thoughts on this and some council moves that are expected to come down, including possibly uh, Vancouver joining uh, North Vancouver and allowing some uh, consumption of alcohol in, in, in parks and at beaches and in public spaces. It's kind of a, a hybrid of park board and, and city council on this one. So George will chime in on that. We'll also talk through some of the shocking Angus Reid polling numbers about anti-Chinese racism in Canada. Plus, of course, we'll have Keith Baldry with Baldry's Beat for You. That's one hour from now. And Keith is working his sources, among other things, uh, to see if Vancouver might just end up being an NHL hub city. We're expecting news of that to come down as early as today, hopefully by at least the end of this week uh, for their COVID shortened season. It's time to to move on that. But up first, let's get the debrief on the first day of the summer session at the BC legislature. And joining us on the line is ledge reporter and editor-in-chief at the orca.ca. McLean Kay is here. Hello there. Hi, Jody. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. On this Tuesday, I'm curious as to your experience yesterday with <laughs> covering all things at the ledge, because you were actually physically in the building, but obviously not in the press gallery. Uh, no, well, uh, yes, I, I was in the press gallery, and I'm, you were. I'm there now. It was a it was a very interesting day. It's uh, I've never seen a day uh, like yesterday, and I I, I guess uh, until today. <laughs> Here I am thinking you were sitting in your office when you said I I can interview people just by phone because they're literally just below me. So walk us through your experience from from entering into the building because you've just recently returned to the ledge, returned to to working in an office environment as opposed to your kitchen table. What was it like arriving? What did it look like uh, visually in the vibe at the ledge? Well, on the, the strangest thing might be when you first walk in the door. Uh, all the entrances have the same signage you see everywhere in BC now. Uh, you know, be mindful of social distancing, uh, stay six feet apart. But it's literally posted next to the injunction against blocking entrances, uh, from uh, protesters blocking entrances, which is what, four months now, but feels like another era completely. It's very odd. Yeah. Uh, there are, you know, hand sanitizing stations everywhere. Um, but more than anything else, you're struck by how empty the place is. There's no, you don't see anyone. The halls are empty. Um, it, it's rather like coming in on a weekend um, <laughs> in that uh, there are people here and they're working, but you just, you don't get that still, that same sense of a, of a den of activity. Yeah. And there's always a little bit of pomp and circumstance sort of around uh, sitting in the house and yet this time everybody was sitting in their houses. Well, except for just a few MLAs who were able to actually physically be in the building. How weird was that? It, it, it was something. It's, uh, I think there's about a maximum of 23, uh, give or take, that can be in the house at any one time. And that's just so that they can have a minimum of two desks between everyone. 
um, and the rest can all attend on Zoom. Um, they've, att- they've installed four large big screen TVs in the legislature. So you can see if someone happens to be speaking on Zoom or uh, and if they're not, you can see sort of a collage of, you know, 40 something MLAs, just little thumbnails of their um, uh, of of them sitting at their desks. So they're all uh, attending, but you might have to use air quotes around attending. It, it is something mm-hmm. to watch, you know, the premier take a question live and in person as, as per usual. Um, but then the next question will come from, from zoom and they're all sort of unsure where to look when they're answering the question. <laughs> we all are though, to some degree on zoom. We're like, where yeah, are we? Are we true. looking at your face? Are we looking at the camera? What's happening? Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's its important to underline yesterday was the first day, and there were always going to be some glitches, and there were. There were a couple, you know, issues that wouldn't surprise anyone with, you know, people that were on mute that weren't supposed to, or, you know, just a few mistakes. But honestly, nothing really even all that funny, just the stuff that you would expect on a first day with a new system. No kidding. And and working remotely must be very odd and awkward because we're just used to, you know, being able to to see visually people behind whoever might be speaking or answering a question or asking a question uh, during question period and just having people sort of hear, hear behind them and nod and, you know, have themselves be known. You can't do that on mute. No, you absolutely can't. And you, I think there's a more of a tendency to sort of let your attention wander. Um, you know, when you're when you're physically present, you're you're aware that you're being watched. Well, not watched, but you're um, you're in a public place. But when you're yeah. sitting at your desk or you know in your own living room, there's much more a tendency to do things like slouch or you know innocently scratch your nose, that kind of stuff. But if you're watching closely, you can catch a few of them sort of, you know, not being aware that they're on TV, really. But again, mm. it, for the most part, this didn't happen. Honestly, the strangest thing is um, the lack of scrums. Now we're not we're not allowed to um, you know speak to MLAs and ministers in person for obvious reasons. But I think that's actually the biggest change. So is it set up similarly to the briefings that we've become so accustomed to with Adrian Dix, Health Minister Adrian Dix and Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry? You know, the sort of press star one to ask a question, then you go into a queue or? Actually, no, um, that that is still how it's done when there is something like a scheduled announcement. And there's a few today and those are like that. But normally, um, when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, uh, the reporters are just in the hallways. And when an MLA or minister walks by, um, you can just start asking them questions. That is something we can't do now. So mm-hmm. instead, what they've set up is a system where we can email staff requesting MLAs and ministers, and then they set up um, something like a private phone line. But it doesn't have the star one. You have to let them know in advance that you want to ask a question. And then they just physically tell you, okay, you're up. And these calls are different in that you're not on mute <laughs> until you right. get the chance to ask a question. And so there's some uh, relearning of, of etiquette there. Um, it worked fairly well the first day. The real test is going to be if and when there's some kind of breaking scandal, where both for the reporters will have to resist the temptation to run down to the halls and try and catch somebody. Uh, but also the, the, the party in question, and it could be any one of the three, will have to resist the temptation to sort of turtle and say, you know, oh, they, that MLA won't be available for several hours for reasons. That hasn't happened yet. It may not happen, but that'll be the big test. Yeah, indeed it will. For those listening who are unfamiliar with what a scrum situation is like, uh, can you kind of give give the Coles notes on on that? I mean, for those of I worked in sports for years and, and being in a scrum is is sort of that push and shove and getting a clip. But it's very different than sort of, as you said, sidebarring with somebody and trying to get them to give you maybe a, a, a bigger piece or a different 
uh, subject matter than what was covered off in a scrum, right? Yeah, absolutely. If if um, an MLA or is uh, speaking to media, usually there'll be a, a cluster of, of reporters, sometimes as many as you know, 10, 15, um, and also things like TV cameras and staff recording it. And they're all, I mean, they're not just close, they're they're touching. It's it's a tight, tensely, tensely packed ball of about 15 people oper- who could fit in about two phone booths. And yeah. it's very sort of unstructured, and uh, there's a lot of, as I say, it's very close contact. It's just unthinkable under COVID-19, but that is how you know, business has been conducted here since you know, the beginning of time. No question. And we've seen them as anybody who loves and watches sports. I remember one scrum was so thick. I was covering the Vancouver Grizzlies and the Chicago Bulls were in town. I had to stand on a chair and reach my arm up and over people to get to Michael Jordan. So uh, scrums <laughs> can be normal. very tight. I've had to do that for, I mean, it's not as exciting when it's Daryl Plekis instead of Michael Jordan, but it's pretty, <laughs> right. it's, it's pretty normal here. <laughs> Jody Vanson for Mike this week, and we're continuing our chat with the legislative reporter and editor-in-chief of the Orca.ca, McLean Kay, is on the line. And McLean, when we get to the politics of day one of the summer session, was there anything that stood out to you? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's been uh, a few months of all the parties sort of united all for one uh, together to uh, try and contain contain the pandemic and support the government uh, in their actions. And, and in the NDP government has uh, singled out both opposition parties for praise and bringing forth ideas. It felt very different yesterday. Uh, they were, instead of talking about containing the pandemic, it was the start of some real debate and some, uh, some questions about issues about the economic recovery and, and some of the impacts for businesses. There's a few sort of big things around the corner that... Uh, the business community is very worried about, and obviously the BC Liberals brought that up, and uh, the NDP response was uh, actually to kind of change their position. In what way? Well, previously, um, they, the business community has been asking for an extension to layoff provisions. Um, in other words, uh, people who have been laid off by the, because of the pandemic, um, they don't have to be fired by law until a certain point is reached. Um, but because they haven't been able to come back to work, uh, by I, basically next week, early July, mm-hmm. by law, they're going to have to be fired, which means severance payments, and uh, which is obviously normally a good thing. But when it's all happening at once for a business that has been devastated by the pandemic, um, I, there are thousands of businesses that simply won't make it. So they asked for an extension. Um, previously, the labor minister, Harry Baines, had said no. Um, the, the current system, which allows them to apply for an extension individually, was fine, and let's just move on. The problem is there's a backlog of something like a 5,000 businesses, uh, or excuse me, 3,000 businesses, um, with a, and it's just taking forever. And so yesterday, uh, the premier Horgan said, "Yeah, he'll um, he'll consider it." From they've gone from no till yes, I will meet with them. I guess on Thursday, and see what we can do. Well, that would be music to the ears of many business owners, I'm sure, because for those who don't uh, necessarily get what what's happening here and people who are in this position my significant other certainly is he was laid off due to COVID-19 is his employer very much wants him back but at 120 days I believe it is in BC uh, you basically are automatically uh, terminated yeah and that that 
might not be what the employee or the employer wants to happen, but it is just a piece of the legal puzzle. We'll be talking to an employment lawyer later on in the show specifically about this, but it's good to know that our leaders are, are having those conversations surrounding what this means, not only from the, the employee's perspective, obviously um, are due some sort of compensation uh, with regard to a severance if, if it is going to be uh, finalized in, in a, a termination, but also for BC businesses who are like, I haven't even been able to open. And never mind, can I afford to pay out all my employees? This is a very tangled web, as as you would say. We had um, we had the Honorable Mr. Wilkinson on the program yesterday, and he was, as always, ready and <laughs> had his messaging down as to what he wants, what the what the liberal leader really wants to throw down as the official opposition, uh, what is needed right now. And I, in fact, Jazz Joe Hall is going to join us, uh, Liberal MLA for Richmond, Queensboro, in a little bit, about the need for uh, relief for business in BC and, and certainly some, some uh, right now ideas that are being thrown down uh, by Wilkinson and, and the BC Liberals. Can you lay those out a little bit? Well, yeah. I mean, there's been some uh, some questions about from the business community, and uh, I guess expressed by the uh, Andrew Wilkinson and guys like Jazz Joe Hall that uh, a lot of the the support measures for the NDP, and I'm going to speak broadly here rather than specific programs, have been kind of you know like hitting the snooze button, uh, tax deferments, that kind of thing, deferred um, uh, property tax payments, and all that kind of thing, and that's that's good, and it's been helpful to get them through the last few months. But you know, there's a it's going to come due. And it's going to come due while these businesses still haven't been collecting the revenue to pay it. And so there's this kind of um, this wave that's going to hit uh, sometime this summer for a lot of these businesses where they have been they're going to get hit with all the bills they would have been paying uh, with something like normal revenue. And so this is uh, similar. It's a similar issue is that they had been given extensions on things like layoffs. But eventually all these things are going to come due. Um, the thing that's interesting is not that um, these issues are happening. There's a, a good and interesting debate to have about them, and we're talking about it now. But back, politics feels back in the legislature in that you're seeing some of the, you know, the sniping from both sides, quite frankly. You don't care about business. You don't care about employees. It's almost refreshing. It, it, it's like, wow, <laughs> some semblance of normalcy. Yeah. Let's get back to fighting one another as opposed to all this bipartisan. And I, I don't mean to know. say the fighting is good. It's just it's it's almost reassuring that they feel confident enough in containing the pandemic that we can get back to debating how to rebuild afterwards. And some right. of the sniping comes with that. It, it comes from a place of, you know, feeling good about moving into the next phase. I, I think that's reassuring, even if you don't enjoy the sniping itself, if that makes sense. It does make sense because some of it is grand theater. We know that uh, playing a role to challenge government, uh, being the official opposition, that's the role of, of, of standing up and sort of having that. Yeah, but sort of physical stance. And it was interesting, again, following you on Twitter is quite something during question period. I, I highly urge people to follow McLean K on Twitter. Try try not to pay attention to the fact that he's like a total Alberta sports team fan. Um <laughs> But uh, we'll, we'll forgive you. Uh, but the fact that you yesterday at one point were, were saying, like, who's going to be the first to really throw yeah. down here? It's almost like nobody really wants to start a fight, per se, like to not get that next level exasperated sort of, uh, I don't want to say nasty, but that next yeah. level that we oftentimes see in, in politics. Yeah, I think both sides know that it won't look good to be the first to to really lose their really lose their temper. You're exactly right. It, that's not the same thing as being you know 
harsh or direct. And we saw some of that yesterday. And I don't mean harsh in terms of mean. I just mean, you know, very pointed questions, very pointed answers. We saw that uh, yesterday. But the first time somebody, you know, doesn't just raise their voice, but yells or insults somebody on the other side or, you know, really loses control, uh, I think will not reflect well on them and indeed uh, the the party they they're representing, just because we've gone months with them being relatively nice. And there is a difference between, again, you know, tough criticism and tough answers, quite frankly, um, yeah. and really losing your temper. And, you know, we've seen a lot of really losing your temper in, in the legislature in the past. And I think no it's kidding. just a matter of time. But I, I, I think both sides are aware they don't want to be first. Indeed. Always a pleasure to chat with you, McLean. Really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Jody Vance in for Mike this week. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us, uh, kind of virtually, I guess. But there's a lot of virtual hangouts happening right now, whether you're on Zoom or if you're of a certain age group, perhaps you're all about TikTok. Maybe you're even TikTok famous. I have no idea what TikTok famous actually means, but I know somebody who does know. Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality, social media uh teacher, instructor, you are a person that educates people like myself who I'm stuck in sort of my social media reality, but very different than that of my 12-year-old or the 21-year-old down the street, Jesse. I really need to, to tap into your knowledge today, if you don't mind. Let's dive in. we got TikTok teenagers. And actually, today we have some really exciting emerging evidence about the mental health well-being of adolescents. So let's dive in. Okay, let's talk about the mental health and well-being of adolescents, because I think that peaks with most of us, that we're just like, are, should we be terrified and concerned? I do have a, a couple of uh, listeners that hit me up at Jody at CKNW.com, one in particular that wanted to talk about TikTok, which was sort of the impetus of my reaching out to you. Uh, what, what do you think about the the sites that say, oh, my God, your kid is addicted to TikTok and you should be very, very afraid? Yeah, there's no clinical evidence at all to indicate that teenagers are addicted to uh, TikTok or any other form of social media for that matter or any form of video game. Uh, But today, a new study in the Dialogues in Clinical Neuroscience out of the Oxford Institute of Internet and out of the University of um, uh, of Stratford, they basically do a deep dive into looking at what the uh, well-being is for youth involving any form of digital technology. And uh, what they've come up with is actually really sobering. I think what most parents need to hear this, uh, the general effects of digital technology on well-being are likely in the negative spectrum, but very small, potentially too small to even matter. Uh, No screen time is created equal, which means we can't measure screen time wellness based on exposure of uh, quantity of time. We have to look at the quality of time. And uh, overall, when it comes down to it, um, most of the parenting rhetoric we hear about kids and screen time is not comparable to anything we've ever seen before. So because adolescents may be more vulnerable in the effects of digital technology, we can't patronize their experience and say that one generation knows better than the other because this is the first real generation that we have that um, their experiences with these technologies, we don't have enough evidence to prove whether it's good or bad as a whole. It is so fascinating. And yet there are these sites that are completely dedicated to terrifying parents, 
uh, guardians, people who are, are are on the periphery watching kids who love their screen time. And like this one example that was sent to me that was uh, protect young eyes. Even the title of it scares me. And I dug in a little bit and there's warnings of addiction and the dopamine hit from being TikTok famous. And, you know, you shouldn't, obviously there are restrictions. You don't want little kids being on social media where they might not be able to handle um, the responses and reactions. That's, that's not what you're speaking to here, right? Yeah. And, and again, you know, when we look at the spectrum of awareness, we usually look at those moral virtues. And the one that you just mentioned, there is a little bit more of a right-leaning religious value to it. They even advertise that if you want uh, them to come and speak at your church, uh, they're more than happy. Uh, but mm. that's, that goes to what people's values are. And again, if you are a more conservative-leaning person and you don't want your children exposed to certain themes, uh, your, your back might be up against the wall with some data that doesn't make you feel great. But overall, th- we have to just consider one really important thing. If the internet has lifted all boundaries when it comes to radicalization, when it comes to content, when it comes to censorship, um, open and connected parenting to these topics, being realistic as opposed to shut the door, um, that's the healthiest approach. And that's where any parent who's really concerned about how their kids are diving into using something like TikTok needs to be prepared to have some fairly frank and open conversations about the reality of action and also the reality of substance and content. Content is key. Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality, you taught me to engage with my son. He's 12. He's 12 and a half. You ask him, he's like 12 going on 16. But when I engaged in, what's the video game that you're playing? Show me how you play it. Tell me the story behind it. Let's talk about it. Let me as your parent be interested in what you're so interested in and then have that dialogue, like you said, about the content, the trust. If somebody wants to talk to you online, what what are you willing to share? What, what are you aware that you are not supposed to share online? There's a lot of that dialogue that is needed and why mediated reality, I believe, is is an important resource for parents. I do want to pivot here with just a couple more minutes to go about the big news uh, out of the United States this weekend with Donald Trump's Tulsa campaign rally and how there were expectations. There were a million people had secured or put in ticket requests and there was all this hype about how many people were going to show up. They had a 22,000 person arena. They even had an overflow area set up for 40,000 people where the president and the vice president planned to speak beforehand. And so 60 plus thousand people expected at this venue in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And at the end of the day, 6,200 people actually showed up. And some are saying that it was actually disruption from the TikTok community, the non-voting age kids decided, we know how we can mess with this uh, campaign. And, and it looks like they really did have significant impact. Yeah, they well, they did and they didn't. So one thing with these events is that when you secure tickets, you're not getting a set seat in the arena. You're getting access to saying, I'd, I'd like to be able to get close. And uh, with uh, the Trump campaign, uh, I think what we've learned about uh, Donald Trump, not only in his presidency, but in his, his existence, is that he likes big things and he likes shiny things. So the idea that a million people had requested to come and hear him speak uh, was an inflated value, but one that they ran on. And so his campaign manager, Manager is very much in the fire, a lot firing lines here of maybe potentially being out of work because uh, that inflated number got touted all last week. And when you only have 6,200 people show up for a 22,000 seat stadium, um, one, you're, uh, you're really recognizing where the issues may be with COVID or maybe the fear of quarantine uh, restrictions limiting uh, democracy. But uh, mm-hmm. for the TikTok kids who really did come together and secure tickets, uh, there was an organized front of TikTok youth users who were able to secure tickets just using the simple idea of just using a Tulsa uh, zip code. Uh, 
Um, so within this reality, there is some impact, but not a large amount. I don't think any Trump supporters turned away were turned away uh, because no, there no. wasn't tickets available. But at the end of the day, this is the interesting part of social media and the world of politics. And it's not regulated to just the internal boundaries in the United States. We saw kids in Canada secure tickets. And that could be a little bit of a concern moving forward. Right. Because disruption can happen on all sides in all directions and with all campaigns. So we need to be mindful of uh, how we consume our news. I've only got 30 seconds left, Jesse, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what does it mean to be TikTok famous? Like uh, like influencers on Instagram or like uh, people who have influence on Twitter, uh, you can be, become famous just making a video in your garage. And uh, we've seen these on YouTube. We've seen them on, on various social media. But the interesting thing about TikTok is that you can become alt TikTok famous, which means in a very interesting, uh, overt but covert way, you're very famous on TikTok, but not a lot of people know about it. Huh. Alt TikTok famous. Clearly, we're going to have to have yet another conversation. Always a pleasure to have you on, Jesse. Thanks for coming and hanging out with me. Thanks, as always, Joey. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week, and it is time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, joining us on the line. Hey, Keith. Hey, Jody. Okay, so virtual legislature, Mm -hmm. Room Raider. You've got Room Raider on this. This is what we (laughs) talked about yesterday. We got to make sure that everybody on their Zoom knows they need a plant. And they need yep. some books, whether they're stacked sideways, vertically or horizontally. It's all part of room rating. What was this legislature summer session like for you? Well, it's uh, different. Uh, nobody's really in there. Uh, there's very few people in the build the legislature building itself. My our global studio, of course, is in the armory building next door. Uh, so I didn't go in there yesterday. Uh, I think there were four reporters in the press gallery. Uh, 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 observing social dis- distancing rules, keeping uh, mm-hmm. two meters apart. Uh, nobody in the in the speaker's corridor except for uh, MLAs. No staff. Uh, very few MLAs were actually here. I think when the, when the house opened yesterday morning, they were open at, at ten. I think there were nine MLAs in the chamber, but that holds eighty-seven. <clears throat> so most of them are doing um, participating in the debate uh, via Zoom uh, Zoom calls from their offices, either at home or in the or in their constituencies. And it was quite interesting to watch. And you mentioned, so Room Raider, for people who don't know, is uh, this phenomenon on Twitter of two people who sort of uh, take screenshots of people reporting from home, whether you're a journalist, a politician, anybody, um, and grade you on on your look. And I'll tell you, I I tweeted out yesterday to Room Raider, you might want to take a look at these MLAs because Mm -hmm. they they need some help. A number of them were out of focus. um, Their mics weren't working. uh, And we were just having a bit of fun with this new reality of really not being in the legislative chamber. And Adrian Nix yesterday became the first cabinet minister that I think probably in history answered a question in question period, not from the chamber, but from his office upstairs in the, in the legislature via Zoom. So this is the new reality of uh, the BC legislature. Just like other other parliaments, it's a virtual, it's a hybrid, partly in person, but mostly uh, via uh, Zoom or Skype. Could it get as animated by Zoom and by Skype as it could in person? Do you, do you predict that that will eventually come into play? No, hard to see that happening. One thing that yeah. this does give, it gives the speaker uh, a lot more power to basically to mute your microphone right. um, <laughs> and, and mute your feed. And so yeah. uh, Daryl Black is as well known, this, our speaker, he doesn't like heckling and interruptions. And so this, this gives him a lot more control over proceedings. And it's hard to sort of get into high dungeon and, and fiery rhetoric when you're yelling at your computer. I mean, it just doesn't yeah. work the same thing as if you're yelling across the floor. So it is a lower temperature. 
Let's talk about expectations. Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix have their three o'clock um, new modeling briefing today. What do you expect? Well, Adrian Dix tells me the modeling is quite interesting. It's uh, all sorts of data about uh, contact tracing, how that works and how it's been working. Uh, Also about how our behaviors have changed as we've opened up in terms of our intermingling with each other, our participation in in doing different things, visiting parks. We saw a bit of that in the last modeling of how we started to come back into uh, normal uh, shopping patterns and such. We're going to get more on that as well. We're going to get more uh, some, some stats about school participation and how that's been going. Uh, so I think it's going to be a fairly interesting um, set of numbers we're getting today, quite apart from just the COVID-19 numbers. The contact tracing is interesting. Talking to some people familiar with this stuff, we're doing it the old-fashioned way, which is basically getting a team of trained professionals who know how to ask questions and talk to people and using the telephone. And the old, the old-fashioned way, just using phones and phoning them and phoning other people. Other provinces are using computer programs. Some are even resorting to faxes. You know, faxing people. I mean, who has a fax anymore? Nobody. Uh, no, exactly. So we're doing the old-fashioned way, and I think we're achieving success with that. And the evidence of that is that we continue to have low COVID-19 numbers. And I expect we're going to. Today's numbers are, are going to be. Um, I expect to be similar to yesterday's numbers. And uh, but. I think the interest today will be in the modeling and the statistics we get. And that modeling, I think, will set the stage and the argument for moving to phase three on Wednesday when uh, the Premier holds his weekly availability. And Bonnie Henry yesterday sort of tipped her hand saying the Premier will have more to say about that this week. Well, the Premier's availability is Wednesday. And so that means the anticipation is we move to phase three on Wednesday. What does that mean? Basically, that's the green light to get out and travel, visit towns, visit communities that want to see you, uh, but do it responsibly. Um, and Dr. Henry and Nadia Nixon pointed out, this is not the, the old travel. This is, you know, you don't show up with nothing in your car. You you take your provisions into these towns and don't overwhelm them in terms of uh, your own consumerism. You've got to you got to bring some goods in there as well. But the message we get out and travel, hotels and resorts are going to uh, open up, uh, hopefully. And, um, and again, we get to the next phase of opening up the economy. It's interesting, too, watching Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday when she sort of was some of those broad hints that you're talking about there about moving forward, but still like trying to reiterate, trying to like get that impression into everybody's brain so the complacency piece doesn't come into play. Like, yes, travel around the province, but you still need to physical distance. You still need to wash your hands. You still need to wear a mask or a face covering in places where physical distancing is impossible. And her biggest one always, Keith, is if somebody is in your family while you're going on your camping trip and someone in your family is sick, don't go. Stay home. Stay home. It's it's going to be interesting as we get into this uh, inevitable more intermingling with each other. Uh, what happens to our case numbers. And I've been tracking what's going on in the United States, and it's um, quite frightening down there, where as they are reopening to a greater degree than we are in many states, 29 states now have more case numbers on a daily basis than at any point in the pandemic and more deaths than at any point in the pandemic. So as they reopen uh, to a substantial degree, the number of cases starts to skyrocket. And uh, it's just, uh, it's very troubling there. I've been watching Washington State 
um, on a daily basis. Uh, Yakima County, which is just south of Seattle, across from uh, the Oregon border, is on a crisis mode because literally their hospital system has been overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients. So this comes at a time as they reopen to a greater degree. I'm not saying that's going to happen in BC, but that's why we have to uh, you know, uh, keep on guard in BC as we inevitably uh, start seeing more people out there uh, and people aren't going to maintain their social distance all the time. There is going to be yeah. a spread of this, but hopefully it doesn't get out of control as it is seems to be in so many American states, Texas, Arizona, Florida. It is a very serious situation south of the border. They're getting into that feared doubling of mm-hmm. cases and when it's just it gets out of control and it is spiking and and I think interesting to note in that phase two modeling that we saw all those weeks ago now feels like a year ago but when we were talking about phase two why they showed us where we've been on the the serious restriction of interactions and then broadening or doubling our bubble to 40 percent what it looks like at 60 percent what it, how it starts to spike at 70 percent like mm-hmm. if we're not cautious if we don't roll out slowly and I think those pieces are, are so very important. I'm going to be definitely tuned in uh, today at three o'clock to BC One uh, to to hear the very latest numbers and what we might be looking at in the days to come. Uh, I do want to just put out there, we're of course going to have your calls for Keith Baldry in a moment here. So if you want to line up on our phone board, 604 280 star 9898 on your cell, 604 280 98 if you want to talk on Baldry's Beat, if you've got any questions for Keith. I have been teasing this all morning, Keith. I want to talk with you. You know we both love our sports. What are your sources telling you about that? My fingers are crossed. Uh, with regard to Vancouver possibly becoming the uh, the hub for the NHL in their COVID-19 shortened season. Uh, the odds for Vancouver greatly improved. Uh, they're now down. We're, we're now part of uh, six finalists in terms of being the hub cities. It's Vancouver, Edmonton, Toronto, and Chicago, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. And again, COVID numbers in those American cities are very troubling. Uh, the United uh, California and Illinois and Nevada all showing big spikes in uh, in COVID-19 numbers. California, uh, basically, we're, we're almost doubling from just two weeks ago, the COVID numbers in, uh, in, in California, just active. In June 17th, it was about 2,100. On June 20th, just, just a few days later, 4,500 cases. So the numbers are going Jeez. up in those three cities that are in competition with, with uh, Vancouver, Edmonton, and Toronto to land the NHL. And you've got to figure, if you're, NHL, if you're the NHL Players Association, you, you've got to weigh this uh, considerably because do you want to expose your members to um, health hazards basically by going to an American city right now whereas if you go to Vancouver the numbers are very low we have bent the curve we flattened it there's no uh, evidence that it's going to spike so that Vancouver is arguably the safest North American city to go to right now uh, for any reason and that includes if you're an NHL player so I think Vancouver very much comes into play now Edmonton as well but their numbers are a little higher than ours but still um, very encouraging for Edmonton and Toronto's starting to slow down the spread they're numbers are still higher, but uh, I don't want to discount uh, Toronto. But from a pure health safety perspective, uh, Vancouver, Edmonton, and Toronto are so much safer than Las Vegas, Chicago, and Los Angeles. And if that's the consideration for the NHLPA, I think that puts Vancouver in a very strong position. 
Jody Vance in for Mike this week, and it is Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, is on the line for this next segment and taking your calls to 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, or star 9898 on your cell. Just before we go to the phone board, Keith, I have to say I loved your op-ed on the changes during COVID at Vancouver is Awesome on Great Glacier Media. I got it in the fin this morning, and uh, fascinating read, really. Well, it just uh, plays on a famous political aphorism from Barack Obama's former chief of staff, Raul Raul Emanuel, who said back in the Great Recession of 2008, uh, you never want to let a a crisis go to waste. And because it's an opportunity to do things that you normally weren't able to do. So I just pointed out uh, by by things like... uh, requiring uh, care workers to only work at one facility, which has proven so important in this pandemic, would not have been possible if we weren't in a pandemic, because everything is moving at such a a speed that we just don't see in normal times. We're able to accomplish that. The distribution of drugs uh, for addicts right now, prescription drugs, to get them over a serious situation and get them away from that toxic supply chain that has become toxic in the pandemic, again, wouldn't have been able to be accomplished uh, if uh, we weren't in a pandemic. So there's opportunities right now for change, and that means potentially Essentially, changing the, the the huge gap in income for people. We've got a guaranteed income right now in place, the yeah. CERB, which was the subject of debate for decades whether one, we could expect a, a national income. We now have one. I'm not sure how long it's going to last, but it's going to last a while. And that's just an example of of again not letting the crisis go to waste. Yeah, we were we were debating uh, the welfare checks increasing by a hundred dollars a month not that long ago. VancouverIsAwesome.com yeah. is where you can read Keith's piece. piece. Let's North go to the phone board. Or North Shore News, sorry, thank you. Uh, Ron in Surrey, you've got a question for Mr. Baldry. Welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Yes, uh, I, I was just wondering, I wanted to speak a little bit more about the Employment Standards Act and that clause of termination because my daughter just got caught up in that and was fired by email uh, mm-hmm. two days ago uh, from a major hotel downtown of which she was a manager. And I'm just wondering, is, is they looking at retracting that? And if so... Um, is it too late for anybody that's got caught up in this already? Yeah, so the government is uh, committed to taking a second look at this. It's something the Liberals have pounced on uh, yesterday. And again, I, my take on, as we've gone into this pandemic, never rule out a government revisiting uh, some of the financial aid situations because things are expanding in terms of helping people rather than retracting. And they, they've we've put a sort of put finite dates on, on certain programs ending, and governments of all, at all levels have had to revisit that. And again, I go back to the CERB, which has been extended for eight weeks, which nobody saw at the very beginning of this. So the government uh, at every level is under pressure to assist people. So some of these decisions about severance packages and, and such um, and temporary layoffs and, and such are going to have to be revisited by governments at, uh, at every level. So I wouldn't necessarily say anything is final right now. We do have an employment lawyer coming on later on in the show, I should say. Uh, Leah Moody, the managing partner of Sam Firu, uh, Tamarkin LLP, will be with us at 11 o'clock. So uh, stay tuned for that. I will I will broach the question of what to do once you have been sort of auto-terminated by email here. Thank you very much, Ron. Uh, let's go to Brent in Vancouver. Your question for Keith. 
Yes, I wish uh, that uh, Keith would ask uh, Bonnie Henry and uh, the health minister about opening up community centers and um, also libraries. Uh, A lot of older people like myself don't have Internet, uh, relied on uh, those facilities uh, as part of our normal routines. And um, with them all shut down, um, we don't have... Uh, the social interaction and uh, the, the use of the facilities that we relied on. Yeah, so Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, hasn't closed libraries or community centers. That's been done largely by municipalities. Uh, and my understanding is libraries are supposed to be, I, th- I think when we get to phase three, caller, I think you will see libraries start to reopen with certain protocols in place. Community centers, I think, will also start to reopen with new rules. I mean, we do have gyms opening, uh, and that mm-hmm. was part of phase two. There are, you know, the protocols are, are pretty high sanitation standards, limits on how many people can be in a facility at one time, and, of course, provisions to ensure people keep their social distance. So I expect library openings to happen um, fairly soon once we get into phase three. Thank you very much for your call, Brent. Uh, If you'd like to get in here with a quick call to Keith Baldry, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. It's interesting, um, Keith, that we are hearing that the lifeguards are coming back. Uh, We're seeing the the photos of the outdoor pools are being filled. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it almost feels like we're, you know, we're itching at the doorstep of of phase three. So at three o'clock this afternoon, um, when when we get sort of that new modeling, you said that the, the premier's availability is tomorrow? Tomorrow, uh, 115, 130, 145, somewhere around there. And I expect that's going to be the formal announcement that we're into Phase 3. One of the big things in Phase 3, too, is, and you're right, Jody, people are itching to get going on stuff, is the resumption of recreational activities. Um, yeah. I'm already starting to see that. Driving around Victoria, more and more people are in parks playing soccer. Uh, yeah. As such, there was people on a Little League diamond um, on the weekend. Uh, I just I, signed I, up my boy for Little League. We we had just received the cancellation. Here's your money back. It's not happening. And three days later, it was like, um, yep. do, do, do you want to? I'm like, yes. We're going to get to some sports resuming. Not all of them. I don't think football necessarily, no. you know, tackle football is going to get going again. But uh, a lot of other ones are going to start uh, happening because people literally are looking to breathe this summer. And that means physical activity. Jody Vance in for Mike this week. Glad to have you along. Uh, there are some astounding numbers here. A new Angus Reid poll has gathered some just shocking details on the the title of the report is actually, quote, blame, bullying and disrespect. Chinese Canadians revealed their experiences with racism during COVID-19. That's the title of this report. What's being referred to as the shadow pandemic in Canada, the virus that, that is racism running rampant in our country. It is very clearly a way larger problem than some would have us think that it is. Half of those polled actually said that they'd been name called or insulted as a direct result of COVID-19. As a direct result, she's half the people. 43% say that they've been threatened or intimidated let that sink in. 43% of the people polled said they'd been threatened or intimidated based on their ethnicity. I just, this is a mind boggling Angus Reid poll. I urge everybody to have a look at it. Uh, there's a lot to talk through here. So let's bring in an expert, the director of Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies uh, program at UBC. Chris Lee joins us on the line. Chris, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. This is just astounding, these numbers. Uh, when you look through this Angus Reid poll, what does it say to you? 
Well, you're right. I mean, these are staggering numbers, and we're at a point now where we simply cannot avoid uh, confronting the fact that COVID-related racism has been, you know, at epidemic proportions, as the report says. And I don't think we're necessarily surprised by this. It's been about two months, you know, where we've been having almost daily reports of anti-Asian racism and attacks. Um, but when you have a study that's this detailed, um, this wide-ranging by such a respected uh, polling research organization as the Angus Reid Institute, I think you really get a sense of how widespread the problem is. And I think what's really important also is that this study gives us a sense of just how much this has actually affected the lives of Chinese Canadians. And so, you know, 60 some odd percent of the respondents report changing their daily routines because they're concerned about potential racism. Like, I just, that just makes my skin crawl. As a Canadian, I, I've always hoped and believed, and I should say I grew up in a mixed-race family. My my dad married a Japanese woman. My half-brother and half-sister are both clearly half-Japanese. Um, so this, to me, I, I can look at my brother and sister and think that they might be targeted in this yeah. way, just as yeah. born and raised in Vancouver as their appearance of entitled white girl sister. Um It just makes my skin crawl that we have so many racist tendencies here in Canada. We want to cast those south of the border, but in fact, they are right here. I have a a friend of mine who's a columnist uh, who was on Facebook trying to gather intel on a story about this specific topic. And he posted uh, the other day that he is absolutely shocked with how he's been inundated on his email of people that are coming at him for even broaching this topic. It is certainly, Chris, a conversation that is well overdue in, in having and, and reflected in these Angus Reid numbers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think um, we also know that anti-Asian racism has not just been targeted towards Chinese Canadians. Um, and so this is something that requires a lot more work in terms of study and also response. Um, but, you know, if we're looking at people who may be of Southeast Asian or other East Asian descent, and we could be looking at one in three uh, residents of the Lower Mainland who might potentially be targeted. So the range is indeed astounding. Um, and, I, you know, in the over the last couple of months, there have been a lot of grassroots work in terms of collecting stories and collecting anecdotes around racism. And those are also really helping to us to understand just how the racism happens um, and also uh, how we might respond to the situation. So let's go back if we can. Uh, sorry, I should reiterate. Chris Lee is the director of the Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies Program at UBC. For those people, the six in 10, the 61% that say that they have adjusted their routines in order to avoid run-ins or otherwise unpleasant encounters since the COVID-19 outbreak began, where would one avoid in that yeah. scenario? Do we, are, do we, have we identified places and spaces where the odds of being abused in this way are greater? Uh, well, let me mention one particular project. Um, there's been a grassroots project called Project 1907, that's project1907.org, who has been uh, collecting uh, reports of anti-Asian racism. And the places where they're noticing these incidents happen um, are public streets and sidewalks. Um, so you're walking out, you know, uh, grocery stores and other stores. Um, and I think this was especially the case, uh, you know, earlier during the epidemic where, you know, there was a lot of anxiety about getting groceries and a lot of lineups and whatnot. Um, and another place that's a uh, place for these attacks has been public transit. Um, so these are three really important spaces in, I think, all of our daily lives. Um, and those are the places where the majority reports seem to be coming from so far. And then it goes next level because just over half of the people that were polled in this Angus Reid poll, uh, just over half are worried 
that Asian children are going to be bullied when they return to mm-hmm. school due to the COVID-19 outbreak. How do we even begin to address that? Yeah, and so this, what's helpful about the study is that we're also getting a sense of what institutions need to respond. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if we're if uh, uh, kids are back in school this fall, this is going to be a big part of their well-being and their safety um, in schools, right? That teachers have to be prepared that this is something that students have been facing and they have already faced it earlier this year before, you know, classes were stopped. Um, and I think about, you know, universities as well have to start facing these kind of questions and look for very site-specific solutions. Um, I think the other thing to mention is that um, anti-Asian racism is not new, right? It didn't start no. just because we had a COVID epidemic. Uh, it may be more intense right now, but these things, name-calling, you know, scapegoating, racial profiling, these things were happening before. Um, and so we need to look at the longer arc of racism um, in Canada as well as locally and think about very targeted solutions. We're going to open up the phone lines in the next segment with your calls, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. Has this happened to you? What are your thoughts on this? Uh, if you've got any questions for, for Chris Lee, uh, please give us a call, 604-280-9898. And, and certainly uh, the pieces of this puzzle that you can see for yourself at this Angus Reed poll. It's at angusreed.org if you want to look through and break down the numbers. But the fact that half are being, half of those who reported here are reportedly being called names or insulted as a direct result of COVID-19 outbreak. So the racism, Chris, that you're referencing there that has been around since the beginning of time has always been of issue is escalating to a degree. Um, is is it an ignorance piece? Is it a is it a lack of education for those who would spew such things? Um, or what are we missing? Are we missing a link here that we we aren't we aren't protecting those in our Asian Canadian community enough from from the rhetoric that we're hearing certainly south of the border from some leaders? Yeah, I, mean, I would definitely say it's many links. Um, it's definitely a lack of education when it comes to the history and experiences of Asians in Canada. Um, but it's also uh, institutions that have neglected questions of racism and have not yeah. put in policies and procedures and other ways of protecting uh, people who are affected. Um, and of course, it's about um, you know different ways of covering the worldwide increase of anti-Asian racism, including what's happening in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, we're in a moment now where there's just so much reflection and calls for change around issues of racism in our public institutions. And I really think we need to see our response to anti-Asian, anti-Asian racism in that context. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week. We're continuing our conversation with Chris Lee, who is the director of the Asian Canadian and Asian Migration uh, Studies Program at UBC. This Angus Reid poll that has come out uh, that has just astounding numbers about anti-Asian racism. And uh, this is not new, but the shadow pandemic of COVID-19 has definitely exacerbated what was already a tense situation. Uh, Taking your calls, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. Email is available if you're a little shy about going on the radio, jody at cknw.com. And in fact, I have a number of emails that have already come in. And I want to point this first one out, Chris, because maybe you can speak to this a little bit. Sean makes a really good point. Uh, the, The title is Current Segment. And the body of text reads, I believe the media should take some responsibility. 
they have spent the better part of the last couple of years telling people uh, in British Columbia that people from China are responsible for money laundering and inflated real estate, etc. How does that Asian gang activity and all of the fallout that has come with that, uh, Chris, sort of fold in to the escalation of uh, anti-Asian racism uh, then spurred on by COVID-19? Yeah, well, we definitely saw in this study that the majority of respondents are naming uh, media as a place uh, where a lot of these stereotypes are coming from. And we're definitely looking at a situation where our relationships around the Pacific Rim are reported in a very partial way. And this is continuing now. We know this is a time of geopolitical tensions around the region. Um, and we're seeing, especially in the U.S., right, where there's a lot of reporting that's very irresponsible around the COVID and its origins and whatnot. So I think this is I think the uh, the writer is absolutely correct. Um, this is a chance uh, and a, a call for media to really look very seriously at how stories about Chinese Canadians are reported. And I think more importantly, to feature more Chinese Canadian voices and perspectives. Right. And actually have the conversation at, like we are now. These conversations yeah. about racism are very difficult to unpack. Certainly, as I said, yeah. off the top of the last segment, as an entitled white woman, as a privileged person because of the color of my skin, I have no idea what it is like to walk in the shoes of my half sister, who is Japanese. And we are of the same family. And yet I cannot pretend to understand what her daily life is like. It is that much of a, of a privilege that we are now talking about. It's a difficult thing to unpack, but it's one that we have to have. And that's why we're opening up phone lines at 604-280-9898. We're going to start with Steve in Vancouver. Welcome to the show. Your thoughts. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having hey, me on. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. You know, if you haven't walked in their shoes and you don't really know, um, I, um, you know, I consider myself a privileged white person um but what i don't get is just the general talk about you know at a cocktail party or dinner or whatever it'll come up and people think it's okay um you know to generally sort of just disregard them discredit them um and i think those are the seeds that are planted that that make it okay for some people to take it one or two steps further um and uh, I, I do a lot of business with Asian folks. I work with Asian folks. I got neighbors who are Asian folks, and I, I have no issue. A lot of them who, who immigrated here, you know, uh, came here um, prepared to do business. Uh, they came here with money. It, it doesn't seem like you can come here without, um, you know, having, having, getting dumped on at some point. Steve, thank you very much. I take your point. And, and Chris, I think the, the really important piece of what Steve was saying there is sort of that, that passive racism that, that, that's, it's sort of like a looking for a green light to continue or escalate in our day-to-day society, what we might ignore, which we should perhaps be calling out. What would your advice be if, if faced with that, that, that anti uh, Asian sentiment, what should one say? How do we turn that page? Well, I think uh, it's possible to say it's not acceptable. I mean, I think the caller is right. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it passive racism, but certainly everyday casual racism casual, is, a that's big, the word. is a big part of the iceberg, so to speak. Um, and it leads to more and more intense forms of racism. So I think as a society, I mean, this, you know, we are struggling with all sorts of prejudices and casual racism and 
daily racism um, through two different groups. Um, and I think now uh, we really have to make a commitment individually as well, as, but, but more importantly, institutionally, to say that's not acceptable. Um, and to understand the reason why it's not acceptable is because it actually leads to direct attacks on people. Glenn, in Burnaby, you're up. Welcome to the show. What are your thoughts? Yeah, for context, um, and not excusing anything, I would say of the last few months with COVID, which affected everyone, uh, their experience, um, much of that's linked, has been linked to China. I don't think that's a doubt uh, in, in the last three months. And of the last uh, week or two, but part of that three months uh, parallel was the two Canadian hostages. So we've got a, a bit of a, a, a some bad faith going on here with China, I would say, and not everyone distinguishes between um, Chinese people, Vietnamese people, Korean people, or Japanese people. My point is, we're kind of uh, where there are seeds or embers or where there's little fires going of, of racism. They're getting stoked by the circumstances and being um, hyperanalyzed. I would Thank have you. had... Oh. I would have had a Chinese-Canadian person speak to the issue of China's link to coronavirus like they did in the States. You would have mitigated the problem. Thank you very much, Glenn. What are your thoughts on uh, what Glenn was saying there, Chris? Well, I think I would also respond to say that we have pretty clear studies from Health Canada that in B.C., the majority of coronavirus cases coming in were from Europe and other parts of Canada. Um, And the U.S., and the U.S. And I, and I mentioned this um, because focusing on coronavirus as a Chinese problem is simply not telling the whole story. Um, and that's not to deny the particular history of this particular virus and what's happened. Um, but this is what I mean by uh, the problem of telling partial stories during this time uh, is that we define the issue in a certain way. Um, and we don't, in fact, understand even what the scientific consensus on what's happening here has become. And you know what, when Glenn, what Glenn was saying there, uh, as he tried to sort of qualify it and put it into context off the top, because I do believe that his message there was, this is how it's being perpetuated in the community and the frustration that is underneath it. Like he wants to say, I'm not necessarily blaming everybody, but, and that is how a lot of this gets perpetuated. It's like, well, there's this and that and that and this. And then you go, well, well, um, Wuhan was not where most of COVID-19 in British Columbia came from. We can prove that with science. What is happening with the two Michaels is, and with Ms. Meng uh, of, of Huawei is, is very much perpetuated by uh, U.S. politics and, and extradition hearings. Like it's way more complex than one single thing. And, and it seems that, and if your overarching message, Chris, if I'm hearing you right, is that we have to just not all put, put it all in one bucket. We need to actually educate ourselves on what is happening here. Absolutely. And, and I think it's, it's quite problematic and even ridiculous to think that the current um, conflict around Huawei should affect someone who's, let's say, a fourth, fifth generation Canadian who happens to be of Chinese Indeed. background. What a massive assumption it is to look at somebody who presents as Asian and assume they're not born and raised here. That is something that we all must keep in mind. Chris, I really do appreciate all your perspective on this and for taking calls with me today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 
Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Tough topics to tackle today on the program. You may have uh, heard about Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart putting forward that motion to end the practice of street checks by Vancouver police. He was on with Linda Steele yesterday uh, afternoon. So we heard from the mayor uh, wanting to take uh, necessary steps to curb what is being identified as systemic racism in uh, law enforcement uh, in our country. Uh, globally speaking, it is what the movement that we find ourselves in right now. But could we be damaging the hard works of those good citizens who are doing their very best to protect our society, to to stand in the line of fire, to put themselves in harm's way in the name of protecting their fellow citizens. Uh, obviously, uh, not all police officers are uh, racist, uh, but there are, are many who are looking at, at what is being laid down as what they all stand for right now as just horror, uh, almost debilitating from some of the police officers who I've spoke who I've spoken to over the last uh, while, just feeling dejected by this this sort of well plague that's that's really hit them during this time of pandemic where everybody is 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 stressed to the nth degree. And now we have the politicization of what police officers are doing when they're doing their very best. So we thought, well, let's bring in somebody who knows all too well the struggles behind the scenes of officers trying to do their very best. And in that, we bring in Ralph Kaisers, the president of Vancouver's uh, police union. Thank you for doing this, Ralph. I really appreciate it on short notice. Hey, no problem. Uh, and again, always available to uh, assist you whenever you guys uh, need to speak to us and get the perspective of uh, the women and men that work uh, behind the scenes of the Vancouver Police Department. Because certainly these stories that and, and the videos that we're seeing, uh, uh, police brutality that, that exists, there's no doubt that what we're seeing is very real. But to paint all law enforcement with one brush is, is very uh, dangerous, is it not? Oh, yes, definitely. And I say that because, again, the vast majority of police officers, uh, they've all joined this profession uh, because in their heart, uh, they are of the character of people that want to help other people. And we're very fortunate that things are very different here in Canada compared to the United States. Uh, However, you know, obviously all the media attention and everything that's going on in the United States has migrated north of the border. And it makes it difficult for us, uh, very difficult in, uh, for our members here, because we, we certainly have very different standards as to who becomes a police officer, what's involved in training. Uh, the oversight and accountability that we have uh, in Canada for our members is all very different. Uh, so, But to be, like you said previously, to be painted with that brush as well is uh, obviously an issue for our members. Um, you know, they do need to be supported. Uh, They're here to help people, and we do need uh, the vast majority of citizens who are in support of the police to acknowledge and maybe, you know, you know, pass on their thank you to our members when uh, when they do see them, because the thank yous are coming. And uh, when they are received, it's uh, very much appreciated. Very heartfelt there. Ralph Kaisers is the president of the Vancouver Police Union. And one of the reasons why I reached out to you uh, was to get the definition of what a street check is. The mayor, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, putting forward this motion to uh, end the practice of street checks. And I thought, well, I don't even really do. I know what a street check is. What What is your definition of a street check? Okay, so street checks have obviously changed over time. Uh, there's been a number of studies that were done. And again, you know, obviously there was this uh, at a subconscious level, some issues of uh, 
racism, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, potentially picking on those of different minorities and stopping and checking those people for ultimately no reason at all. Now, that practice obviously is something that was an issue even here in Canada, and uh, there's been a number of reviews that have been done across the country, and that practice simply has stopped. It, it does not happen. Uh, it started with a huge review in Ontario. I think it was Justice Tollick who uh, made recommendations that came out of that. The practice, as they called it in Ontario, carding ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't do it. So, you know, throughout the nation, different provinces, different cities all started looking at this going, hey, you know what, we need to look at this as well. So the Vancouver Police Board uh, back, and I don't know exactly when it started, but they had uh, consulted a uh, private company that did a review of the street check policy here in Vancouver. Uh, You know, they discussed this with focus groups. They went out on ride-alongs. A lot of research was going into it. And they put together the uh, their report, and it was uh, I think it was like 255 page report uh, compiled and presented to the Vancouver Police Board. So the Vancouver Police Board then made the decision by way of the recommendations that came out of this uh, all this research that you know what we need to make some changes too. So we ultimately in Vancouver no longer do street checks as they were done before uh, and again. So now, and I say this because the same time period from last year to the same time period of this year, there's been a drop of some 90% in street checks. And what I can say about the street checks that we do now is every one of them is somehow linked to some form of, you know, criminality or a violation of some kind of law. So there are no longer random stops of anyone just for the sake of stopping them to see who they are and why they're doing what they're doing when they're doing it. And it is always now linked to something. It has to be uh, some kind of law or contravention of some kind of rule that's been broken that we then use uh, as an authority to stop a person. So, uh, which is interesting too, because again, I, I think the vast majority of citizens would all agree that, yeah, we shouldn't be just, you know, pulling random people over for no reason at all. But then at the same time, you know, if it's three o'clock in the morning uh, and you've got someone walking down the lane that's peering into parked cars in the laneway and a member sees that, like, so I think the public would normally kind of expect us to go, hey, what's going on here? What are you doing here? Uh, Because, you know, our spidey senses are saying this guy's up to no good. Uh, He's peering into cars in the middle of the night because chances are he's going to be breaking into one of those cars at some point. So do we just now let them continue on because we're not allowed to stop anyone at all uh, by way of what the mayor is suggesting with his, uh, his motion and council. Can I ask you a question with that exact scenario? I'm curious. So the, the mayor wants to make it so you cannot approach that person who might be lurking in the laneway, peering into cars because nobody called that in. You could only intervene if somebody called in and said, there's someone lurking in my lane. Well, see, I think that might even be a stretch, too, because, again, you know, has that person actually committed any type of crime just walking in a lane, uh, peering into cars? One would argue, and certainly the courts, they would never uh, see that as someone, you know, attempting to break into a car just purely by looking into a car. Right. So uh, it's going to be difficult. uh, And I say this because moving forward, you'll see there will be no one stopped and checked and that also uh will you know kind of change things <laughs> as far it as could how embolden it those who want to break rules and break oh, the laws can gu- guarantee middle of the night uh i mean our criminals uh you know 
I'm sure they're listening to a lot of the stuff that's going on in the media as well. And if they know that the police no longer can stop them, uh, you know, crime will increase. Example of that's in uh, in Toronto. I, there's great intelligence that, uh, you know, a lot of the gang members in downtown Toronto, once they realized that carding was no longer allowed, uh, they quite openly would carry firearms. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's quite frightening because, uh, of course, the gang violence and uh, shootings in Toronto uh, certainly spiked right, right after carding was eliminated in uh, the province of Ontario. You know what, Ralph? I'm right up against the clock here. I, I definitely need to have you come on and speak to this in in a broader fashion. Uh, certainly very enlightening to have this conversation. I do appreciate you coming on on very short notice. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you.